You're listening to Making Waves, Fresh Ideas in Freshwater Science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences, and the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fisheries Sciences. This is Eric Moody at the 2014 Joint Aquatic Sciences Meeting in Portland, Oregon. I'm here with Stanley Gregory, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Oregon State University. He was involved in submitting the Willamette River, which flows through Portland, for the Thies International River Prize, which it won in 2012. Thanks for joining me. Sure, Eric. My pleasure. So tell me, what exactly is the Thies International River Prize, and what does it stand for? It's a prize that's given out by the International River Foundation in Australia, and it's given out for innovative approaches for river restoration in global rivers. And they have been giving this prize since 1999, so there have been 15 awards to date. And these rivers that have been recognized are all around the world, and they generally tend to emphasize uh, innovative approaches toward restoration that are community-based and involve many partners working together. So what makes the Willamette River so important, and why was it considered for this prize? Well, the Willamette has received a lot of attention over the last 50 to 60 years in terms of its uh, conservation and restoration. It was badly polluted. And then there was a major cleanup effort in the 1960s and early 1970s that actually made the cover of National Geographic and with people declaring that it had been cleaned up. But that was the water chemistry, water quality side of it. And then in the 2000, right after 2000, the turn of the century, the Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board and Watershed Councils and the Meyer Memorial Trust here in Portland started to focus on its restoration. They chose it for several reasons, but the main reason, particularly the Meyer Memorial Trust was interested, they wanted an environmental issue that was relevant to Oregonians, and the Willamette River exists totally within the state boundaries. Mm -hmm. It flows into the Columbia River, and two-thirds of our state's population live in this basin, Mm -hmm. so it was very relevant to our state. And so the Meyer Foundation started trying to increase capacity for restoration. And the state Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board and Watershed Councils all started trying to cooperate with the state and local community. So now that the river has been awarded this prestigious prize, what does this mean going forward for conservation and restoration efforts in the Willamette Basin? That's a really good question. We're trying to answer that same question. <laughs> and so we, we've been having meetings every two years called Within Our Reach, and it has a double meaning that it is within our reach of the river and our concerns about river health, but also it's within our reach, our grasp, to actually do something to improve the river health. And so we've been having these meetings, and the fact that we received this award was actually creates a bit of a challenge, but it also provides $200,000 that we can invest in the collective effort community, the outreach, hopefully create some more innovative approaches. We also, an interesting thing that comes out of the International River Prize, so when you win the International River Prize, you receive $200,000 to invest in 
continued restoration efforts. You also receive $100,000 to donate to a country, a developing a river basin mm -hmm. in a developing country to do a 20 and to collaborate, to share lessons learned for us to understand things that have been successful in their river system and for them to come see what's been successful in the Willamette. So we're looking forward to this 20 with another river in the world. We haven't selected it yet. There are three finalists, but we are waiting to actually receive that twinning award before we decide to make the final decision. But right now, the finalists are down to a river in Mexico, a river in Chile, and a river in Bulgaria. Have you been to any of these other rivers? No, I haven't. I haven't yet. That would be fun. Yeah. No, I haven't. <laughs> are there any criteria for selecting whichever will receive the twin funds? Are there any parallels in particular with the Willamette that will be used in this election process? Well, we had we had people in our group that had knowledge of or had been to these rivers and make their nominations. But the river I nominated didn't make the final. But everyone prepared a presentation on the characteristics of the river that they were nominating and explained why it would be a good twin to the Willamette River. I had to have several things in common, kind of a similar topography and a similar distribution of land use. Some of the threats uh, needed to be similar, like dams and conversion of the riverine floodplain to agriculture or urban areas. So there needed to be very similar basin characteristics so that it was actually a good twinning. I knew that there were some basins like that in Mexico, and I knew that in Chile there it's very similar in topography and mm -hmm. climate. Bulgaria surprised me uh, when they presented it. I thought, Bulgaria? But actually, uh, when they gave the presentation, the photographs, and it looks just like the Willamette in many ways. And so it would be interesting to see which one finally makes it. In 2004, you published a paper looking at future scenarios of development and conservation in the Willamette Basin. Now that it's been 10 years since that paper has been published, which scenario do we seem to be on track for? That's an interesting question because several things have happened. The state of Oregon has adopted our conservation scenario as a model that it's using for a target, essentially, for the future. Not that it has to be attained down to the, the tiniest detail, but it's a general vision of the direction, the trajectory that we would like to see the basin go. The interesting thing is not so much that people have just adopted it and took what we did, but in many cases they've taken our data sets and our information that we had assembled and then modified it and built their own models and did things with it. And so in some ways I see the greatest success isn't that people just took what we did and applied it, but that they actually took what we did and improved it and they modified it. And that's really a good thing when they change it and make it better and make it their own. That's been an interesting side to this. But it is interesting that right now for the restoration of the floodplain on the mainstream Willamette River, that the work that we did is serving as the context and the goal, essentially, or the guiding vision that they're using for planning their conservation and restoration and actually mm -hmm. measuring through time to see are we headed along the trajectory that we intend. It's interesting, every decade, like 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020 will be very important because that's when we had our census information. 
and so our population information that comes in at those decade intervals. So we have been trying to update our land use and land cover and human density measurements along the river every decade. And so we did that in 1990, we did it in 2000, and my colleague David Hulse at University of Oregon is now doing it for 2010, and so soon we will have that, and then we hope to continue that into the future. An interesting measure that David Hulse and his research team at the University of Oregon recently found was that the floodplain forest has actually been increasing over the last two decades. That's a positive trend. It's not simply because of the restoration efforts, it's because of restoration efforts, but also private landowners doing things on their land to restore uh, floodplain forest. So that's at least encouraging, gives us some hope that maybe we're heading in a positive direction. The unfortunate thing is that when we look at some of the land use and zoning, that looks more like the development scenario instead of the conservation scenario because with human pressures there's a lot of waivers to our land use laws and zoning regulations. And so there's some good news and some bad news. The river seems to be getting healthier, but we have some challenges perhaps in terms of land use. So we're trying to get a better focus on what those are. It's actually difficult. When you look at world rivers and ask people, have they looked at the future of that basin in a spatially explicit way and actually mapped it out to see what the future will be if we just keep doing what we're doing or how it could be with believable or plausible restoration measures or what might happen if we relax our environmental regulations. And it seems like that's a real fundamental question that we should be asking in all of our river basins. But it's actually relatively rare. And even once you get started, it's hard to keep it going. Do you think some of the success of restoration efforts in the Willamette River has been due to the involvement of so many diverse stakeholders? Yeah, that's really kind of hard to say why the magic sometimes works and why <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. The Willamette is fortunate in the last decade to have s several people that have been creative and found ways to bring resources to bear that hadn't been available before. And that's really encouraging. Before 2000, people ignored the mainstream land river quite a bit. They were working on small streams, doing wonderful things under the Oregon plan for salmon and watersheds. They were really doing great restoration in the small tributaries, but nothing in the large river. And starting in about 2004, 2008, that really changed. I'm not sure ex exactly if it was just magic and time or what. The other thing that helps is, is when you have quite a few different people in different sectors that have the same hope and they would like to see the river healthier. And they will work together using their different capacities. The Willamette right now is, is a success really because of Team Willamette, not because of any one person or any one group. It's that all of the groups are working together and sometimes let, putting their egos down just a little bit to go for the group successes. And I think that has made a big difference. One of the things we have noticed is that as we have worked on it over the last 20 years, we've produced a number of products, documents that lay out a guiding vision, that lay out 
key goals and actions that are important. And there are probably about a dozen of those that we have for the one MM. And they're fairly consistent and quite often created by many of the same people. I think it's also important to recognize that river restoration is never going to just be something that you accomplish or attain. Right. You will never get there. You're always working on the trajectory of improving river health so that the river is ecologically more functional and that the valley, the catchment, is more livable. And you never get there. You keep working on it. So it's always a process. You have to be ready to be invested in process and ready to do it the rest of your life because you aren't going to stop in 2015 or 2020. Every year, we're going to have to keep doing it. And we need young scientists, young citizens, young practitioners. Do you have any advice for other people who may be listening or who are right now thinking about ways to kickstart conservation or restoration efforts in their own favorite river basin? We teach a class on the which we get students from the University of Oregon and Oregon State, put them in rafts, and we have four days on the river as a floating classroom. In that classroom, we asked the students and the scientists, when it came to the future of the Willamette River, were people optimistic or pessimistic? And even the question about rivers of the world, or the river that you live with or work with, are you optimistic about its future, or are you pessimistic about its future? And the answer to that is a very individual answer. And there's a lot of reasons to be either optimistic or pessimistic, hopeful or fearful. And it's an interesting question in river groups when you get out on the bank of a river around a campfire or in a raft or in a meeting to just ask people, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic and why? And, and the answer isn't the endpoint. No matter whether you come up with an answer that you're hopeful and optimistic or that you're fearful and pessimistic, then the question is, well, then what do we do based on that feeling that we have about the future of the river? And I found that a really interesting thing to think about. When I've been on the river, I've been talking with friends and going around the world and seeing other rivers and talking to them and asking them, are they hopeful or are they fearful about the fate of their rivers? All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you, Eric. It was fun. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast. Brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.